You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is May 10th, 2023. It's Wednesday. We had some interesting data that came out. CPI or consumer price index was reported to be 4.9% year over year. So this marks, I think, 10 months straight where inflation has come down. As we all know, and we've talked ad nauseum, inflation has been driving the Fed to be restrictive on their uh, monetary policy. And as a result, that slowed down the economy to a degree. Um, but finally, starting to see or continuing to see some uh, reversion back to the Fed's stated goal at 2%. Um, Doug, what did you think about that, and what do you see in the underlying data? Um, I think it's, uh, I guess we, we we have made a lot of predictions on this podcast. I would say like 75% of them have been wrong. But the one that's been right has has been the fact that there's a um, persistent and pretty heavy drag on uh, inflation going into 2023, and that's going to be the fact that rents are going to come down uh, due to home prices coming down really last year. And uh, and we're finally starting to see that. So owner's equivalent rent makes up, uh, what, 30%, 35% of the uh, core CPI number, uh, and that's turning down pretty dramatically. Three-month annualized percentage uh, owner's equivalent rent uh, peaked at nine percent, and it's moving down dramatically in like the last couple of months. It's down at seven percent annualized now, which I still think is way it's way too over, high. It's way too high, but it's uh, it's finally starting its downtrend, and so that's going to continue to be um, that headwind for the people that are calling for a high inflation regime for an extended period of time and a return to nineteen seventy style. Stagflation. I think the rent component of this is is really debunking, at least to this point, debunking that sort of uh, that trend. And so, um, anyway, so that's what, how I'm reading into this. I think it's still higher than the Federal Reserve wants, and I think that the part of that problem is that they're they're likely not uh, going to cut rates soon until it gets to that two to three percent range, which could could be later this year, or early next year, and so could be a period of time in which uh, interest rates are elevated, which impacts a lot of things, specifically mortgages and credit in general. And so um, I'm I'm hopeful for a pause or a potentially a cut in rates um, minus you know, potent, potential downturn in economic growth. So cutting for the sake of cutting, not cutting because you have to. Uh, because of a recession. And so uh, we'll see what happens later this year, but it's definitely trending in the right direction. If you look at, so we've talked about truflation before. Truflation, the Fed, what the Fed looks at is sort of stale data, two or three months old, like this owner's equivalent rent number. Um, but the actual, if you look at truflation, it's more of like a real time picture of what's going on in the inflation environment. Truflation thinks that inflation is, the, Fed, the federal government thinks inflation is at 4.9%. As of their data from today, Truflation thinks it's closer to three three point seven percent, and specifically related to housing, Truflation thinks that housing on the whole is more around four percent versus this owner's equivalent rent number that's reporting at seven or eight percent or something like that. So, 
Um, that's going to be really the sort of interesting issue of the next few months is the Fed's going to probably stay restrictive until they see the evidence that inflation is coming down, but it's probably already and it has a, is it actually coming down, but they're looking at stale data. Um, so that's a really interesting sort of dynamic that we'll see over the course of the summer, I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the issue there is that things move very quickly now and um, relying upon a major lag effect in housing could cause it. They're, they're data dependent. They, that's what Powell keeps coming out and saying that they're going to be data dependent. But you have to also ha- you utilize some common sense when you had this huge bubble in housing, specifically in some areas that has clearly burst uh, in 2022 and co- coming into 2023. Uh, that's going to have an impact on um, on rental growth as well, or or, or lack thereof. And so, uh, I would just you know use some common sense there. But it sounds like they're just going to continue to rely upon. Uh, the data that they use, which I think is a mistake. Yep, agreed. So shifting gears, this is we've talked at length about this the dynamics in the Fed and inflation, et cetera. The, I, I saw this interesting chart as it relates to the dynamics in the actual U.S. stock markets, and this is something that came up recently when we had uh, a meeting with a prospective client whose financial advisor who had like large stakes in Apple and Microsoft, et cetera. And that particular uh, prospective client's financial advisor was taking those positions and selling them and diversifying into the S&P 500. Um, Doug, what, where does, what, what's wrong and what's, where's the fallacy in that logic? And where do things stand as it relates to the, the uh, weightings of those particular stocks in the S&P 500? Yeah, I think the fallacy of that that logic is why would you ever want to sell Apple and Microsoft? But besides besides that, um, the the biggest issue with it, and that's a joke by the way, but um, the biggest issue with that is is uh, the fact that you're selling you're selling. Let's say you have like a half your portfolio in three or four stocks, and those stocks are Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, and and the advice is to diversify, which is generally good advice. Uh, this particular issue was diversify by selling, taking capital gains, and then just buying the S and P five hundred. The problem with that is those four particular positions, um, which was the this case study, represent about twenty percent of the S and P five hundred. And so, essentially, what you're doing is you're taking capital gains. And then reinvesting by buying the index, which owns 20% of those positions anyway. And so there's no real diversification that's occurring there. Wherever Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google go, the S&P 500 is going to go. And so essentially, you're just paying tax for very limited diversification. And so um, I think that that's such an interesting dynamic when people look at concentrated stock positions and get a little bit scared about overexposure to a a particular sector or to a particular company and then say, okay, I need to diversify. I'm going to sell and I'm going to buy this. You need to understand what you're buying via diversification before you make that sort of decision because you're just, in this case, it's just useless uh, tax payments. Um, It's so hilarious. It's it's, it's analogous to saying, okay, well, we're going to Sell and realize tax and buy back the almost the exact same thing essentially. 
Right. Yeah. So anyway, that I, that's a really interesting case. And then the other the other component to this too is that um, the uh, typically the largest companies that make up the S and P five hundred, like your leaders, leaders turn into laggards over time. And so there's this chart of the S and P five hundred top ten holdings going back to nineteen eighty, uh, nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty five, nineteen ninety. Top holding was IBM. 95, 2000, 2005, top holding General Electric. 2010, the top holding was Exxon. And then the last uh, 15, 20, and 2023, the top holding is uh, is Apple. And so these regime changes uh, occur, and it's hard to imagine that Apple uh, is going to be replaced by anything other than Amazon, Microsoft, or Google anytime soon. But it happens, and and especially in technology, um, there, there can be an up and comer that comes out of nowhere. Apple was that at one point that really takes over the world and your biggest companies, your IBMs and general electrics have sort of the, um, issue of becoming too big with it's, I guess they call it the innovators dilemma and that, uh, what, what it took to get you to the top, um, you, you never have, you don't have that edge anymore because there's so much red tape and the, the company is too big and, and you don't innovate anymore. And so, uh, the end of the business, you mature at that point and the end of the business is nearer, uh, than, in, than the, the innovative days. And so uh, I think that that is the biggest risk to these big positions and the, and the reason you should diversify, even though you're saying like, I can't Look, imagine. I'm never, selling, right. I'm never selling my Apple or I'm never selling my Exxon. My dad worked there in the 50s and 60s and we've held the stock for you know, 70 years. But um, these things, these regime changes occur and diversification is key to long-term success with limited volatility. But at the same time, think about what you're doing before you make that diversification change because buy, selling Apple and buying the S&P 500 is... Is, is not a great idea from a diversification perspective. Right. And I'm just looking at, while you're talking, I was looking at some of the names that are in the 1980s and, and et cetera. Uh, Atlantic Richfield, I have no idea what that was, but I'm imagining that was like a subsidiary or something that was rolled up into one of the telecoms. Bell South, uh, Amico, Sears. Sears. Right. It's just, there's, so there, and at the time, those those were like the big dogs out there. Um, IBM was and for 15 years was the biggest company in the uh, in the market. Likewise with uh, G. 2000, 2005, AIG. Right, G, exactly. I mean, so obviously, you never the problem. The real problem with that is that there's with people that have these concentrated positions. There's you develop incredible psychological for 10 or 15 years. You're a genius, um, but a lot of things can happen. Basically, technological changes can happen in the 1980s, for example. Um, that, so presently, the Exxon is the only oil and gas company in the uh, top 10 stocks in the United States. In 1980, let me count this, uh, Standard Oil of Indiana, Schlumberger, Shell Oil, Mobile, Standard Oil, Standard oil of California. So was, I don't know if I counted five or six of the top 10 companies in the United States were oil companies. So things can happen a lot of... in. A lot of these companies were rolled up into one single one. Um, so even if you combine these things like uh, Exxon and Mobil were, were merged at one point in time, there's still, if you double those companies, basically it's Exxon is basically the number eight company uh, in the United States now. So uh, thing, life can come at you fast. 
It's important to stay diversified, but make sure that you're not diversifying into the exact same thing that you already own. The other thing to, to consider too, Doug, as you well know, a lot of times, let's say Apple is and Microsoft account for uh, 13% of the index or whatever, there's probably another 20% of the stock market, if you added it up, that's really, really highly correlated to those positions, meaning that they're involved in some form or fashion with their with servicing Apple or servicing Microsoft. So even if you're even if or, you're not, or they follow the same sort of tr consumer trends. I mean, like uh, those are those are discretionary purchases from Amazon or you know buying a new phone from Apple that um, during a you know economic downturn get less uh, consumer demand. And so even if it's not like a supplier. If it's not on the supply chain of Apple or Amazon or whoever, um, it's impacted by sort of these exogenous shocks to the system and uh, you know, just because of the sector that it's in. And so, yeah, I mean, like the S&P 500 being, I don't know, 30% tech, um, you know, that's, that's another issue with diversifying into uh, from a tech company into the S&P. And so, it, again, it's we're big proponents of diversification. I think this was a really great case for like just a big question mark around why are you um, t paying a huge tax uh, just to buy the same exact thing that you're selling. Right. So speaking of, right, so as it stands right now, the S&P 500 is, is more concentrated amongst its top 10 positions as the, another interesting dynamic about this chart. It's more concentrated in the top 10 positions than it has been in the last 40 years. Right now, the top 10 positions in the S&P 500 account for about 29% of the index. Um, relatively speaking, like in the 1980s and at various increments, it got up to 25% a couple times, but has really sort of been hovering in the, in the high teens. So it's really highly concentrated amongst just 10 positions and higher than higher a higher concentrated amongst those 10 positions than it has been in a long time which is not something that you see in typically in the in these um like global diversified markets you see it more often in emerging markets where you have uh one single company or a few single companies that account for the whole um index if you compare just to give you some relative size comparisons about apple for example relative to other global markets. CNBC reported the other day that Apple's this is the price of app, Apple changes regularly. The uh, the market capitalization, meaning the total outstanding equity of Apple at that point in time, was two point six trillion dollars. Now, if you relate this to this one single company to other global markets, this is relative to um, the publicly traded markets in Germany. So, Apple's at two point six trillion. The publicly traded markets in Germany are 1.3 trillion, or half the top, half the size of just Apple. The entire publicly traded markets in Germany, in France, 1.8 trillion, in U the UK, 2.6 trillion. So you could basically Apple is worth the equivalent of all the publicly traded uh, stocks in the UK, and basically if you combine the in round numbers combined, France and Germany, that's what that's what Apple equates to, which I think is just. A very interesting and crazy statistic. What would you What would you rather own? Would you rather own Apple, or would you rather own the entire stock market of the United Kingdom? 
And to give you an idea of those biggest companies, I would probably rather own United Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess. <laughs> um, right. It's I just, mean, what's what you got? Like, there's a you got a lot of banking stocks over there. I guess I mean, it's a pretty diversified BP, economy. Yeah, that, that's a diversification question. Like, uh, but it's uh, it's it's amazing to think about that you could essentially trade Apple for every publicly traded company in the UK. Um, I remember this, there was a, we have to go back and find this, but at one point in time, Apple was worth more than the entire energy sector might still be. Um, but it's, uh, it's just amazing here. I shares MSCI United Kingdom ETF, uh, tickers EWU. Uh, I want to go, let's look at its fact sheet, pick its top 10 holdings out. While you're doing that, I'll give you some interesting, this is the French, the French market is all like, uh, like it's very French. It's what you would imagine. It's all uh, luxury good providers and yeah. uh, like cosmetics. So the biggest one is Louis Louis Vuitton, uh, Moet and Hennessy. L'Oreal is number two. Hermes is number three, and Dior is number four. So, okay. So okay. Uh, MSCI United Kingdom ETF. This is a um, iShares ETF. Top ten holdings for. Uh, MSCI UK, AstraZeneca, Shell, HSBC, Unilever, BP, Diageo, Rio Tinto, British American Tobacco, GlaxoSmithKline, Relics. Um, that makes up 50% of the, the holdings, those top 10. I mean, I would, I would take, I would take that. I mean, you're, you have drug companies, you have oil companies, you have banks, you have liquor companies, you have tobacco companies. Um, that seems like, a and you know, from a price to earnings basis, trading at a, a, a steep discount, 12 times earnings, which I think Apple is like 26. It seems, it seems like much that. less risky. If I mean, there's obviously <laughs> Apple has a lot of, you get iPhones and iPads, et cetera, and they're ingratiated in our lives with Apple TV and their services and apps, et cetera. But there's seemingly more risk involved in that one single company and that versus like the broad diversification that you mentioned in the British markets. Yeah. So, um, anyway, not a recommendation, but just a, um, just very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting that that's, uh, that occurs. Um, last topic I want to touch on because this is, we're probably going to be talking about this in earnest, um, next week or the week after is this whole debt ceiling thing. So Greg, do you want to explain really what is going on in Congress uh, what the debate is and uh, potential ramifications for investors. So the U.S. government has already borrowed money um, and paid for expenses, et cetera. But the mechanics of a from a legislation perspective is the government, the Congress has to basically approve the payment of those bills. And for the last, really, this came up. This really became an issue in 2011. But every year, it's seemingly it's an issue that the uh, minority party in, or the party that's doesn't not controlling the executive branch will use it as a negotiating tactic to try to extract concessions. Democrats do it, Republicans do it. Um, and it just so happens, happens fairly regularly like that. In 2011, the United States got like three days before the debt ceiling was going to expire until they, the, the uh, Congress finally agreed with the president to raise the debt ceiling. At that point in time, there was a lot of market strife. 
and um, the markets were down, I think, 16%. Because if you think about it, the the fact that the United States wouldn't be paying its bills, like what the ramifications of the debt ceiling fail, f- a failure to raise the debt ceiling would be that uh, benefit benefits wouldn't be paid, like Social Security. I think Social Security is outside of the realm of it, but but like military payments would not be made. Um, uh, any sort of invoices that were sent to the United States just wouldn't be paid, essentially. Treasuries um, would not be, coupons and treasuries wouldn't be paid, uh, et cetera. So there's a lot of ramification. And then the the U.S. dollar and treasuries are like integral in the whole world global financial system. So if there was any sort of like default on, the, on treasuries or the dollar, et cetera, it would cause all kinds of calamity in the financial system. So... According to Janet Yellen, who is the U.S. Treasury Secretary, the U.S. is um, basically going to run out of money um, and fail uh, f- fail to meet its obligations in anywhere between the next four to six weeks or something like that. But who actually yeah, it might knows? Even be, yeah, it might even be sooner. Or than sooner, that. Or, right? It's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of we spend a lot of money in this country. It's a it's a you know it's we're we're the uh, main show from a global economic standpoint. So. There's these dynamics that are happening. The likelihood of it actually happening is meaning like the likelihood of the U.S. defaulting on debt is probably is very low in my opinion. Um, if it does happen, it's not good, obviously. But the markets seem to be sort of shrugging it off because like the markets have obviously recovered recently. Although the closer that we get to that deadline, um, I'm sure that would cause some volatility. Um, but there could also be positive volatility if they came to a, an agreement. The, I think the, the most likely outcome, at least right now, is probably a uh, "Quote unquote," kicking the can and postponing having some sort of temporary agreement till later in the summer or the fall, so that the uh, both sides can can uh, uh, come yeah. to a consensus. And the, essentially, the Republicans are trying to curb some um, expenditures on a go forward basis and using the debt ceiling to leverage that. And similar to what the Tea Party did in 2011, that um, you know the as you said the the minority party in this case the republicans control the house but um don't control the senate and obviously don't control the executive branch um are are moving to to reduce government spending as part of uh this negotiating tactic related to the debt ceiling and obviously it would be a major political hit to all parties involved uh if this doesn't go through so the markets at least as we look at them today the fact that they've remained fairly uh stagnant and slightly moving to the up upper trajectory in the wake of really like banking crises that we've seen markets have been resilient now the next one is going to be this debt debt ceiling limit uh they just collectively markets are are shrugging this off i I think um what's likely to happen is is definitely increased volatility positive or negative as we get closer to this let's call it june 1st without any deal done but um, i'm with you i think what happens here is they get some sort of extension in place um temporary relief and then you know a few months down the line figure out how to negotiate this and then what happens what's going to end up happening is we're gonna have this conversation again because they're not going to have an agreement uh with you know a few weeks left to go and so that's the nature of our government. A lot of spending, a lot of debt, and and major division. And when you have major division, even we have more division now than we had 12 years ago. Um, nobody wants to concede to the other side's wishes. And so it's unfortunate. It would be a major unforced error uh, if they if it happened. And um, 
and anyway, we're our our outlook at least internally is that uh, the the probability is high that they get something done. Yep. So a couple of other things before we close this out that I found interesting that I wanted to talk about. I I um, am super interested in this whole Russia Ukraine conflict. I spent a lot of time reading about it. Anyway, the the Russians celebrate May 9th as their it's the V Day from World War II, and they usually have this grand, very uh, very Russian style military parade and, and, um, their capital. And basically every year they have like tanks, et cetera, and a flyover. Um, but this year they had, uh, and normally they have 200 vehicles, but I follow this guy on Twitter that posted that they, they had, uh, only 40 vehicles this year and, uh, and only one tank and no flyover. So there's, that's another interesting thing that's going on in the world that could, <laughs> could drive markets. Um, I've also followed, they have this guy, this, they have this, this, uh, mercenary group, uh, that is basically serving as like, has served as like a shadow, uh, military force, but they're like starving this guy of ammo. And uh, anyway, there's all, all kinds of interesting things happening on the Russia, Ukraine front. Um, secondarily, I, I, I hope they, I hope they come to some sort of resolution on that. I at this point in time, what is, um, from the, from the white house's perspective, let's say you spent. I mean, on, on an optimistic, but let's say you're an optimist related to um, the U.S.'s involvement in this conflict. You spent it. You spent a hundred billion dollars to basically dismantle the Russian military, which it's. I mean, that, that's what you're alluding to is the fact that, like, there's there's no equipment anymore. There's no ammunition. <laughs> they've been in this their ceremonial they, parade. They had one right. tank, basically. So yeah, and so, I mean, at this point, like, you, mission accomplished. I, I I don't see the really need to continue even if you're a proponent of uh you know us's involvement in this it's like at what point do you do you say um we've accomplished our objective now we need to move towards some sort of off-ramp for putin but i know this is a financial services podcast and not a political one but um i just don't see the point anymore well that's and that's that, the uh the sun zoo's art of war this is like we're going getting into deep uh, non-finance stuff. Is the way to to uh, to solve conflicts is to build your enemy a golden bridge, essentially. So yeah, that's exactly. got to be the next phase. Um, yeah. But I agree with you 100. At certain point, you know, you know, it's you want to make sure that there's a reasonable compromise, which that's I think that's the objective. But there's obviously that's that could drive markets, and it's another interesting topic. But I did I did notice that 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 one tank was uh, was things are not looking too good from a military uh, equipment perspective in Russia right now. Um, and then lastly, I want to close with this, and this is more of, this is also gets to non-finance, but it's also more of a human nature thing. So as, um, as our listeners all uh, know, during COVID student loan payments were suspended. And then, um, there was a push that I don't even know what the, the, the actual outcome is to, to, uh, forgive a certain amount of that. And so the, the sort of like silver lining or glass half full way of looking things or rose shaded lenses way of looking at things would be that. Those individuals that had their loans um, forgiven or suspended, et cetera, would um, would basically use that and take that use that and change their lives and and uh, and you know basically um, essentially clean up their financial house. Um, there was a study done that would actually would actually happen by the University of Chicago. Which, which said, I don't even know where you're going with this, but I know it's going to be bad. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's good. And I quote, we evaluate the effects of the 2020 student debt moratorium that paused payments for student loan borrowers using administrative credit panel data. 
we find a large stimulus effect as borrowers substitute increased private debt for paused public debt. So essentially, what what people did was they they now that their loan payments were less, and they essentially replaced that with uh, auto loans, credit cards, mortgages, etc. Yeah. <laughs> as you would expect, right? Yeah. So um, I think the the idea of handing handing out a bunch of money and without any sort of uh, recourse um, and thinking that people are going to be responsible is probably not a good idea. We, I and mean, we probably shouldn't do that uh, if this were to come around again. So, agreed. Okay, so we'll close with those two items. A little something, a little devi- deviating a little bit from uh, finance, but we hope you guys enjoyed our discussion today. We're gonna come back next week, and we hope you guys join us. Uh, this is Greg and Doug Stokes signing off with Lanyap Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends and family and give it five stars. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.